December 18th, 2005. It's a Watt from Pedro show.
Pedro show. Uh, here we're on a Sunday, kind of gray in Pedro. Uh, but it's uh, not zero <laughs> degree Fahrenheit Minneapolis weather, although that was really beautiful. Luckily, the storm went way east. Well, not luckily, because people in North Carolina are getting pounded. But I was able to fly out and, and then fly back home, do the thing there. It was pretty interesting. Got to be with Steve McClellan, a great cat. I, uh, he took me to this uh, college, McNally Smith Music College. Practical theory? Yeah, I was the practical example of music theory or something. And, I'll, yeah, let me tell you about the whole thing. Um, well, first I should tell you we started with John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk. I have a Carnegie Hall 58 with Nutty. And then, uh, oh, yeah, uh, Sky Grifter by Urinals. And our guest today, John Talley Jones. Welcome. Hi there. Thanks. Made the hell ride from Pasadena. Yeah, all the way down the freeway. Well, you and I are at opposite freeway. ends. Yeah, opposite ends of the freeway. Yeah, yeah almost a straight shot. You get the like, cool space up there, and that, that's like the first freeway in the country, isn't it? The, well, the Arroyo uh, Parkway there? That one, that part of it, the bendy part. Yeah, they made it bendy to make it interesting for With people the, who can only drive 35 <laughs> miles an hour. And five and mile an really hour. super dangerous. Five mile an hour off ramps. <laughs> yeah, yeah off exactly. Ramps so you can throw out the anchor and <laughs> pop the chute. And then on ramps that are stop signs, so you yeah. can get the big daddy Don Garlitz thing going. It's a challenge. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um but, uh, in fact, I've been to his pad. There was a, a thing you guys had. Yeah, uh, we had a party. We have our right, and annual I was in the backyard and He's right up on the hills. Oh, cool. Yeah, right up against the hills. It's really neat. Uh, maybe a little smog in the summer? Uh, not as much as you'd think. Oh, it okay. used to be when we first moved out there, but things are a lot better now. You had your way. Yeah, <laughs> we, were, we convinced the powers that be. You got the ashtray, Brother Matt? I don't want to ash up the love grotto here. <laughs> anyway, uh, so thanks so much, John. I've wanted you on the show since September. In fact, that's when you're, uh, the re-release of Keats That's right. came out, and I've been playing some of it. But now we can do it up proper, and you can talk about it. In fact, we could talk about it a lot because uh, <clears throat> the Urinals was a huge, huge band for the Minutemen. And we drew tons of inspiration from you cats and... I don't know if we'd be the same band without urinals. And I think it works both ways. That big influence on us. But to get back to Minneapolis, uh, before I did the gig there, First Avenue, um, they had me uh, talk, Steve McClellan had me talk at this uh, music college, McNally Smith. And they had all these bases, uh, five guys on bass, you know, and the, some kid uh, let me use his bass and there's chairs. Up. So I started playing. I got a kind of a, almost a drum part on the bass going for the guys to see what they jam on. And after a couple minutes, I just said, man, enough of this. I mean, how much, how much do these cats have to be always looking up at somebody playing like this? So I put down the bass and I got the mic and I went out. Well, first I asked all the guys who were up there with me what was on their mind in regards to me, what they want to ask me. And then I went out into the crowd and talked to them and I didn't play anymore. It was just our spiel and kind of like philosophy of the bass and the way I saw it, the way I worked it and what I want to try to get uh, going better at. And hopefully just empower them and uh, uh, 
yeah, put a weird people perspective on that thing. And then I get done with the spiel, and the boss, uh, uh, the McNally guy, uh, Don Senor. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can't remember his first name. But he uh, said, yeah, no, uh, we're making a Mike Watt scholarship for bass here at the school. So that was, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. You're legit now. I got into music, you know, to play with D. Boone and uh, then the punk scene be part of that. But somehow, we, that's a trip. That's cool. <laughs> Legacy. Yeah. A Legacy. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting about uh, people's take on it. Uh, you know, hey Mike, do people have kind of a philosophical approach to this thing? I mean, what what are they? What makes the bass different from any other stringed instrument? Yeah, that's kind of what I got into and stuff. And I t- gave them uh, examples of my history, not knowing what the bass was, coming from arena rock and being so far away and not really being able to hear it good on records. And I had to like stumble to discover what it was, and I think that led to a lot of my philosophy on it. It's, 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 there's a lot of mystery about the machine. Uh, it's kind of a kick drum. It's kind of a uh, weird guitar. It's, it's a lot uh, undefined still. But uh, in like almost non-music terms, it's sort of like grout, I found. <laughs> and I gave them examples uh, about physics. We're putting these like uh, humblers on, on the machine. Like, the uh, more notes you play, the smaller you get. And I try to impress upon him the strong thing about bass, I don't think is really technique as much as, like, uh, composition or writing parts, finding the right notes. Uh, so you can be big, so you can hold the band together. <clears throat> yeah, non-musical terms, like, you know, people go in the bathroom, most people want to look at the tile. And, well, I look at the grout, you know, and the bass is the grout. It's kind of the glue that holds the, glue. the band together. Yeah. yeah. So I was trying to say, uh, tell him maybe the bottom line is try to get the big picture. So there's these five, six, seven, twelve string basses now, and yeah, you hear it the, the fancy intro, and then the band kicks in, the bass disappears. I think there's a reason why they pick them four strings. There's a place, you know, that physics lends to us where we can get heard and where we aid and abet. Mm-hmm. And anytime you got more than one guy playing, ensemble, performance, I think the goal is to try to make an interesting conversation out of it. And so we, we have a strange pers- perspective where we come from. But it's, it's unique and politically almost the best thing in a band. One of it is this mystery about it because uh, we don't have to really uh, tote the burden of the cliche as a lot of like lead guitar and these other kind of instruments because of our mystery. So we're almost a little more free to define ourselves. And there's hilarious things, too, about it. Uh, I, I told them, you know, I had to admit that when I see a band, the first the person I focus is on is the bass player. The first thing I'm thinking is, well, nine out of ten shots, he probably didn't write or she didn't write the song. And uh, so they had to bring a part to it. And so I'm thinking in my mind, what part would I bring to it? And then, uh, really wild, sometimes uh, after the gig and you really like uh, their playing, you know, you like their parts, and you find out the cat's been playing like three months. It's funny. You don't have to play long to write a good bass line. Right. It's incredible. 
about that. And probably, um, I think bass guitar lends itself to that more than any of the other instruments right. because it's 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 also a kind of a nurturing dealio. Kind of makes it, yeah, you look good making the other cats look good. You bring them in. And so that doesn't always uh, require some convoluted thing. It can be, what's the word, elegant, huh? It's just, just enough. And you can enable the guys. You can springboard them uh, to do their best. It, it's it's weird. You know, Dee Boone's mom made me play it. because We knew every band had a bass because um, it said it on the album credits, except for the doors and seats. <laughs> what was that about? I don't know. I didn't even know about left hand. We didn't know anybody played keyboards, so we didn't even know about these things, uh, really. But uh, we thought it was a guitar with only four strings, because that's what it looked like in the pictures. They had four tuners. We didn't actually know the strings were bigger. I didn't know it was lower. <laughs> Music's a little more accessible these days. So I had to stumble through this stuff. And I remember when I met D. Boone, he didn't really know rock, so the only band he really knew was Creedence, as far as being close to rock, his pop was really into Buck Owens. So, I mean, we were only 13. So I learned all these Creedence songs, but I don't think I really learned one bass line. I couldn't hear the bass. So you're playing it like a lead instrument. Yeah, or, or yeah, something. Just trying to play along with D. Boone. I couldn't hear the parts on the records at all. The only guys I could kind of really hear was uh, Jack Bruce and um, John Entwistle, uh, James Jamerson, Larry Graham. Well, the R&B stuff, and this is what we later found out with Minutemen, a lot of it's composition, you know, and the R&B stuff, the guitar guy put himself in a role that was very uh, generous to the bass players. Lots of space. Yeah, a lot Rhythmic. of space. Yeah. And in fact, we took that into ideas, especially Dee Boone with his things, thoughts about Minutemen as music as sort of an economy where, uh, yeah, you came together with the different parts and not so much a hierarchy uh, I don't know my style would have been anything like it is without playing with Dee Boone. I think a lot of the way he uh, gave me room, played very trebly, muted strings a lot. He gave me a lot of space and stuff and, and set me up almost to go down the path where I ended up um, rolling. Uh, so that's a big part, too, of music. It's people you play with and probably why bands stay together. I mean, how long have you had the urinals now? Well, on and off since 78. Yeah. Long time. Uh, I'm curious about how you started. I mean, we had this myth that you guys just didn't even have assigned uh, instruments. You just picked it to right. make the band. We had the band, the concept of the band before we knew what instruments everyone was going to play. We doled them out according to what everyone's interests were. Um, I took the bass because I figured with only four strings, I couldn't screw it up that badly. It was, it would be easier. I wasn't capable of playing, you know, uh, chords, which would require much too much dexterity. I wanted something where you play one note in sequence with another note, uh, you know, sequentially linear, linear, exactly. Something very basic, uh, so to speak. Um, I didn't learn how to play bass properly. I was thinking of it as more of a lead instrument. And so essentially we came up with kind of a unique sound as a result of that because uh, Kel was playing pretty rhythmically and I was playing more melodically. Um, and I think that brings a unique texture to the material. So you all met at school? Yeah, UCLA. Correct. And like film? 
Uh, Kevin and I were in film. Kel was in philosophy. Okay. Uh, we were all in the same dormitory, and we just kind of had the same cultural interests, and we thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to do this? And everyone was game, so we went, we went for it. <laughs> all right. But we didn't take it seriously at first, and then once we realized, wait a minute, this stuff sounds kind of interesting. Maybe there is something here. It, one thing just led to another, and before long, we were taking ourselves seriously. Which, but there's a tape. Uh, you, you played a party where you guys lived, right? Yeah. The first gig because yeah. it's on one of the CDs. Yes, it's on the Some negative songs. capability, right? Which is pretty balls out. I would be very paranoid that, to put any of that my was first stuff. <laughs> absolutely, our first performance as a three piece before we had any idea of what we were doing, and so it was essentially a noise, really. I mean, with with structure. Yeah. But um, some of the songs are only three or four notes. Over and over again, yeah, yeah. we figured we should only write within our own capabilities. Well, keep on Shuglin's one chord. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, but it's played by people who know what they're doing. But so still one it, chord. It, it sounds a little bit it's more professional. Chord. Which was blew us away about we, early on we did Ack, 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 a song off your first record. Yeah. And, uh, or four acts, but we would always only use three acts in the You title. stripped it down even further. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we like to breathe in Pedro. Yeah. But uh, this idea of the one chord, and then when the big change comes, it's just a half step down. It was like so econo. You couldn't make variation more econo than that. That's what you we know? were thinking. It was like, whoa. And this is because um, we graduate in 76, and the big band was returned to forever, and blow by blow by Jack Bev. All this fusion was coming on. And then all of a sudden, as unfortunately Minutemen wasn't, our first time getting together. We had learned off records, or tried to. So we felt really tainted when we uh, got into the punk scene. Because these cats were just going for it, and how could we undo that? So we took a lot of inspiration from you guys. And we used severe things like uh, short song formats, and yeah, that sound, guitar sound Boone had, and all this stuff, so to purge. Somehow, I mean, it obviously was our own hang-up. Right. As we would talk to people, and they were like, man, we want to know that stuff. And here, we wanted to unknow. <laughs> we were almost reactionary, hence the name of our first band, with our past. We were really at war with our past because we thought it was that culture, or, or lack of culture, that kept us from writing songs. We blamed the arena rock on everything. So now we had this new movement. Right, because you're comparing your own effort to Yeah, no, to nobody in town wrote their own songs. And here's these cats who are just learning how to play, and they're not afraid to write songs. Yeah, I mean, it sounds naive now because everybody writes songs. but And there probably was a lot of that in the 60s. But for some reason, well, humans go through cycles. And we were right in that cycle where no one, you know, the best guy is the guy who can play Black Dog the best. And that's mm -hmm. it. What's on his mind? I don't know. You know but he can sure <laughs> do that lick. You know, nobody related <clears throat> uh, expression with the the do. It was all the do, and like building models. That look, looks like the real thing. Can't fly. You know, it's a little replica. <laughs> but you know, I built it. You didn't. All this kind of weird stuff, and uh, a lot of us, a lot of what, especially in the early days with us, was reacting against all this. And it was probably a different experience than other cats, but. I, I saw a lot of this in the L.A. punk scene was people from all kinds of different things coming together. People that are almost destined to almost know each other, but they couldn't because of uh, how we're spread out, balkanized. And then the scene comes up where these uh, 
weirdos from their own little places came to make a common weirdness, but was still distinctive. That's what I really liked about those days in, in L.A. punk rock is because you'd have these various scenes, the LAFMS scene, the um, you know Monitor B people, Human Hands, there'd be us, there'd be you guys, there'd be Black Flag. Yeah. Everyone was approaching this from a very personal, unique perspective, and and yet there was a commonality that allowed us to share yeah, absolutely. bills together. Even though the bands didn't sound anything like, like each other, there was, there was almost a purity about the, the approach that everyone was taking. Yeah, I know. I, thought, I liked it a lot. It wasn't like punk was a style of music almost. It was, that was up to the band. Right. It was more of a philosophy. So you never had a band before urinals? No, uh-uh. See? The bass was my first that's and what we pretty thought much only too. instrument. You know, and me and Dee Boomer thought this was just such a noble thing. It was, it was a concept, an endearing you know. thing, yeah. But still, I, you know, we couldn't undo our past, but it was just something we just really admired. Uh, so, but how long between that first gig and then you making the, the yellow one? Oh, okay, uh, What's three that? three months. Start from with the shop. Yeah, uh, okay. uh, the first urinals EP. Um, actually, Vitas Madere from the last, who had produced uh, some of their singles. Uh, saw us on that very first show, Halloween of 1978, the, some of which is on the uh, Negative Capability record. And that very night, our first show, he said he wanted to record us. And <laughs> we said, sure. So by the end of the year, two months later, uh, we had the record ready to come out. I'm, I'm not sure if it was actually released in 78 or early 79, but it was really fast. And it was before we had played off campus. We had played maybe two or three times at UCLA, and that that was it. Suddenly there's this record out. It right. happened remarkably quickly. Now, the recording, the bass and the guitar in the same amp? For the first recording, yes. We plugged. We and only had drums, one amp. paper skin? The drums were from a toy store on Pico Boulevard. We went looking for drums, and we couldn't afford real drums. <laughs> I think Kevin had a budget of... $40 or something. So we found this toy store that had these clicky little toy drums. I mean, they were good enough to record. Oh, yeah, yeah. They had a really odd, distinctive, uh, clicky sound. The The cymbal had rivets uh, drilled into it to, to provide a sizzling sound when he, when he hit it. And then Vetus recorded the whole thing with these... He, he had this one underwater microphone that he had scraped all the resin off of, and that's what he used for some of the vocals and um, and drum. Four-track? Yeah, it was four-track. But the old day kind. Reel-to-reel. Yeah. Doe quarter with a hor horrific uh, uh, echo effect on it. It was kind of built into the thing. How many it takes? Well, we recorded the whole thing in, in one afternoon. I don't remember how many takes. Probably four tunes. Probably two or three takes per song, but I don't really remember. Did it you mix it that fast. same day? Uh, no. Vetus mixed it on his own, I think, and, and presented us with the final versions. So, because uh, I was going to ask you how you met Vetus. He, he just, as I first saw him as organ player for last. Right. We had not seen him as a performer at all. He comes and sees you play yes. and asks you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we didn't know who he was. He approached I us. I saw Joel Nolte last night. He came to the gig in Long Beach. Yeah. The singer-songwriter of the last. And, uh, yeah, Vitas is playing with him again. 
who hasn't played in a well, long he played time. Well, he played at the Keats reunion. I'm not sure. Oh, did he? Yeah. Great, because I know he hasn't been playing for years. No, he hasn't. He's been doing architecture up right. in Malibu. He's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> He's self-taught in that as well. Yeah, so you make that first record, and then you start doing gigs. Right, and it takes us a really long time to play Hollywood. As a matter of fact, we played Austin before we played off UCLA in Los Angeles proper. Wow. Well, you're originally from Texas? Um, or I, went to, years I went to school at, at University of Texas in Austin. So we because had uh, connections. you were the guy in the Hans. I roomed with him for a year, yeah. <laughs> the he was, singer. And he was a high school buddy of mine. And they're like one of the first Texas punk bands to have a record. And yeah. Well, there was a scene there. They were probably the most notorious. Yeah. There had already been bands playing punk. Uh, the reversible chords and um, who else? The skunks. I think the big boys maybe had started up at that Dicks. point. The dicks might Neck have been. breakers in Dallas. Nerve breakers. Nerve breakers. Yeah. My girlfriend is a rock. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but Phil Timeless wanted tunes. Phil, my my ex roommate, wanted to do something a lot more flamboyant, and so he he started the Huns, which was very theatrical. Yeah, yeah. The one guy with the leaf, uh, Erickson. Leaf Garrett fixation. Yeah. Yeah, he'd have posters. I have that Busy Kids record. It had like a bigger sleeve. Yes, it was deliberately bigger so that it would – you couldn't put it in with the other common <laughs> seven-inch record. Now, your records were funny because they're labels that have nothing. I, I think my urinal one had a piece of film yeah. scotch taped. Exactly. Super no A-side from B-side. And then – That was budgetary, Mike. And then – oh, yeah, but it was – kind of cool too there was aesthetic to it like the cover is a xerox thing on yellow paper of a chain link fence yes <laughs> it's very minimal <laughs> it's but, but you know we, even though there was nothing on the the labels we always made sure there was a That's message right, written in the groove so yeah in fact we caught on to that we never Secret noticed messages. it was on all those other albums but we saw it on theirs and uh surfs up I think it's. I, I don't even remember yeah. what's on there. And so we did it on all our records because of that. It's like you're sending a secret message to the people who bought your record. Yeah, yeah. Just a little something extra. Uh, yeah, we had spiels on all, every one of ours, and we got it from that record. So you do some gigs, and then you do the second EP. What's the distance between? That was probably about six, seven months later, and we were in a proper studio at the UCLA Film School under the auspices of recording a soundtrack for one of the movies that we had been working on. Uh, we had no intention of, of putting it in the film, but we wanted to record it yeah, in yeah, a single. Yeah. So we had an engineer there. And, and Stealth. What's, what's odd is that record, recording is only three tracks. So we were down from four tracks to a, what you'd think would be a more primitive-sounding record, but because the equipment was so good, it really sounded like a proper band. Yeah, it sounds good too. Yeah, it, it sounds it a lot better. Has its own sound, but and the songs are a little bit more sophisticated too. What was uh, where was where did Vitas do the first one? He did that in his parents' pool house behind like a shed in the backyard. It was nicer than a shed. He, <laughs> he was living there. Pool shed. Yeah, but it was essentially a, a studio apartment kind of thing. Okay. And so you go to the studio at UCLA to do the second one. Yeah, which was... And that was a real good rent. It was a huge space with, you know, acoustical walls and... and uh, Microphones. Proper recording equipment. And 
we were blown away that we could sound that professional. It was kind did of a shock. Did you spend more time? Um, it was probably a full weekend. We probably did two days. And it was just one. them four songs? Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then you go out and you do more gigs. Yes, and I think we finally played at Gazari's with the last and an early Jeffrey Lee Pierce band called the Cyclones with Pleasant yeah. Gaiman and the Go-Go's. And I think that was our first show off campus in Hollywood. And does Happy Squid come around? Well, Happy Squid, we created to issue the very first record. We mm-hmm. thought, no one's going to be interested in this. We're going to have to do it ourselves. We couldn't imagine anybody showing any you know, commitment to it. So we pressed up 200 of the first one, and we started taking them around record stores and putting them on consignment. I got it, Zed. Yeah, Zed was one of the ones we hit. That was probably the furthest one we would drive to. Long Beach. All, all the way to Long Beach. Way to Rhino, Long Rhino, of course, in Westwood. And, and by you, uh, Poobah. Poobah. Yeah. This old house kind of thing. They've moved. They're not in that house anymore. Oh, wow. It's too bad. It was a fantastic yeah, that space. Yeah, was neat. Although you were probably on the west side at this time. I was, yeah. So yeah. Pasadena was like the other side so of the moon. So the closest moon. thing to you was like Rhino. Rhino. Yeah. Yeah, so um, we were astounded when the 200 copies we pressed up sold out, and so we had to go into a repressing. Because, um, you know, I probably didn't get much radio play aside from college. Well, it didn't get any radio play aside from college. But at that point in time, there were a lot of journalists all over the United States writing about this kind of stuff, especially in the metropolitan areas. And so we made sure that, you know, people like Byron Coley would get copies of these, these things. Kick and, boy. And we'd be written up in, you know, Slash and yeah. whatever the local the fanzines were. were strong. They were the at that fabric point. of the community. At that point, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's too yeah. bad that's no longer the case. Yeah, yeah. That's how – because not a lot of people were torn, so that's actually how you knew about the other scenes. Yeah. And they knew about yours. Uh, what were your impressions of the first gigs you guys did? They were chaotic. Um, it was really super noisy, which I was very happy with. I wanted a lot of chaos. I wanted a lot of noise. Uh, it wasn't particularly musical. It was more an idea of, of music, of sound. Uh, we didn't worry too much about the fact that we couldn't play because the songs were, were simple. We we could still articulate the ideas behind the songs. Um, were you scared? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to have <laughs> – I used to suffer from stage fright for years. And then so eventually I grew out of it. just emerge into this world a flamboyant entertainer. No, I was terrified. I didn't know what my stage persona should be. I was looking at everybody else going, okay, well, here's how they do it. They're really threatening and scary and – we couldn't really be threatening and scary because we were, <laughs> we were college kids, you know. So we had to – it took us a long time to figure out how to present ourselves. Did you ever think about outfits? Uh, we always thought there should not be outfits. Now, <laughs> Naked? No, no, just, you know, street clothes. We shouldn't try yeah. to be anything that we weren't. So we didn't indulge in the spandex or anything <laughs> like that. Weirdos Although, had outrageous. Yeah, they did. And we were, not, we were not theatrical at all like yeah. that. We wanted to keep everything pretty direct and unmediated. Now, Kevin later on discovered he had a fashion sense. So he would start wearing moomoos and, and dashikis and things like that. He was more culturally attuned to things. But Kel and I were always very bland. And it, what was funny was 
you know, we went through a period where we weren't getting along very well and invariably we would show up wearing almost identical outfits. So it was almost like the two guys in the band who weren't talking to each other were wearing the same clothes, like a uniform. Karma oh, Wales. It was funny. Uh, do you remember getting your first bass? Now, you obviously got it for the band. I did. I got it from a thrift store in Santa Monica for 60 bucks. It was a Japanese copy of something. And uh, it had a hard time staying in tune, but what it, I didn't know that. So <laughs> I don't think I had a tuner. Kel had an amp, I believe, that had a button on it. And you'd press the button, and a C would come out of it. So he would tune, and then I would tune to him. And that was, you know, it was an approximation of tuning. It was good enough for what we were doing. It was fine. Now, uh, you did a, a third one. Yeah. Just two songs. One was the last song. Yes, Sex and Go Away Girl. Go Away yeah. Girl is the last song. We pressed it on one side. Yeah, we and tones on the other side. We, we didn't want to have anything on the other side, yeah. but the engineer insisted that there be something for some kind of acoustical balance. I'm, I'm not really sure why they insisted, but he said, no, there has to be something. So he pulled out a tape of tones and put them there, and we actually got reviewed for the B-side as much as the A-side. <laughs> These guys are experimenting with electronic tonalities, yeah. which I thought was really funny. Oh, I forgot to talk about the cover of the second record. Uh-huh, the black and white photograph? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who took that? Uh, Kel's girlfriend at the time, who was our manager for a short period of time, took that photograph, as I recall. That was taken in the dorm. So you guys had a manager? We had a manager for a couple of months. Uh, Cheryl Sleen, she was from San Diego, and she got us to play a Battle of the Bands in San Diego. So we drove down there, and we played this huge old, uh, what had been a movie theater, you know, the balcony and everything. Mm -hmm. And we played with uh, four other bands from San Diego. We were the only L.A. band. We were the only band who didn't sound professional, but we had our own thing going on. And uh, they hated us. They were throwing <laughs> stuff at us. It was glorious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kel got, got hit in the guitar with a tomato. <laughs> and after the set, he was furious because he had to open up the electronics and remove the you know tomato seeds from Jeez. inside. <laughs> he had recently... Uh, broken his foot at an X concert. He jumped off a stage or something. And so he was virtually immobile Ooh. at this show. Easy target. Easy target. So I'm, you know, I'm moving around. Kevin's <laughs> behind his drums. And so the only target anyone could aim Kel at with any degree of for the success, team. yeah, was, was Kel. <laughs> so he did not have a good time, but it was a, a lot of fun. <clears throat> and then the pictures on the back, it looks like it's Xeroxed. It is Xerox. Okay. Yeah. So manager slash album photographer. Yeah. And then and Vetus did the graphics. Yeah, for sex. I was consisted of a, oh no on on the on the uh, the second one. Vetus oh. did the graphics, which consisted of label maker. The label maker. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Yeah. But who does the third one? Uh, I drew no, I didn't draw the, draw the first one, the third one. Excuse me. Um, those illustrations were from a, a guy I was working with at the UCLA bookstore. He drew them. Outsourced. Yeah. Job. Well, you know, it's nice to and and the first EP, as a matter of fact, the design was done by um, a friend of ours in Neef, Tim Quinn. Oh, yeah. So in each case, we had. People with with whom we were acquainted in in the arts locally, yeah. in the in the UCLA community, uh, help us with the visualizations. Happening, yeah. So. Okay, but that's the last, the third record. 
is the last urinal recording. It's the last urinal, seven inches. There was from something. The Happy Squid sampler. There was yeah. a urinal's track on there. Because you guys put out a seven inch, and what you? Yeah, you's on there, and that's been reissued as part of the Keats Rides Keats. a Harley package. And uh, early stuff. you guys have some. What was the Rocky Erickson? Are you still urinals, or do you change the name for that gig? We were 100 Flowers at that point. Okay. Yeah. Where we but recent, Rocky. right? You're yeah. Just kind of turned. Because I think we it's a strange thing. The band stays the same, uh, personnel-wise and stuff, the lineup, but uh, instrumentation. But you change the name right. to 100 Flowers. Yes. We felt uncomfortable with the name Urinals because... Well, where'd you get the name Urinals flowers? in the first place? Oh, Urinals? Um we weren't taking it very seriously at first and we wanted a really childish sort of offensive name. And, and that's what we came up with. It was, I know we call ourselves the urinals. Oh, it was a big joke. Oh, uh, cause we always thought of Duchamp. Yeah. I think that was a lucky, the ready made synchronicity, you know, that our mutt. <laughs> it, it, I, I, I like that idea, but I can't really take credit okay. for thinking in those terms. You're thinking more on like, Juvenile. Yeah, more of a juvenile <laughs> attitude. <Okay. laughs> but but I like then the make the switch to 100 Flowers, mm-hmm. which is probably from a from Mao. school, 100 Schools of Thought. Yes, exactly. Something. Yeah, I remember Dee Boone showed me the passage. And, and then you change the name. And yeah, that gig at the Whiskey. Right. Pretty wild. That was fun. We got to re- meet Rocky Erickson, who, uh, you know, we covered You're Gonna Miss Me in the early days. And... Uh, was a big fan of his and he was really great we were all backstage and he came in to meet us he was very gracious he says i want to meet the hundred flowers band i understand you guys are the hundred flowers band. i hear you're really good as he is wont to do and he it's it's probably 90 95 degrees backstage and he's wearing this full-length fur coat and he walks in and shakes everyone's hand and he was very very nice was that your first whiskey gig was it uh it might have been. We played the whiskey several times around that era. It's conceivable it was. I don't really recall. We played there with the last. We played there with uh, the Bangles. Uh, played there with uh, oh, Human Hands and Middle Class later on. So we did, I don't know, half a dozen gigs there maybe over time. That may have been one of the earlier ones. Our first time there was with Fear. So we were a violent SST band, wasn't allowed to play those clubs, so Fear gets us in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. Ridiculous. <clears throat> this preconception. There's so many preconceptions about, you know, from Square Johns and Rock and Rollers. It was a trippy thing dealing with that. Well, that was, that was kind of great because people automatically assumed that you were scary. Yeah. Yeah. So Pro- you, you got a certain degree. Yeah. Pro- provocativeness. Now, you know, if you're a young person, probably you're expected to have a couple of punk years. <laughs> But in those days, it was definitely a fringe yeah. movement. And it kind of surprised me. I never thought it re- would get big. I, I knew it wouldn't disappear because the idea of just starting your own band can't grow obsolete. But for it is getting big as it did, that... And now it's just another acceptable sort of alternative lifestyle statement to make. You know, uh, absolutely. You pick, pick one from column A, pick one from column B. and it, To me, it's lost its immediacy. Yeah, yeah. 
Because we on were, some levels, they're we were some... inventing it back then. We right. Know but for some doing. kids, they're inventing it for themselves if they don't get caught up in the mass. This uh, is definitely a means for them to do that. The mass it's, version of it. It's an avenue for yeah. them to discover how. So hundred flowers how to express themselves starts doing gigs, but then records a single. Yes. Um, the first, you know, the first hundred flowers recordings were actually for Hell Comes to Your House. Oh yeah. That compilation. compilation. We did Corona for that. Sorry, before that, uh, I, we recorded a, a final four-track song. Sal- it's on Sal- Keats, Salmonella. Salmonella. Which was done at the last rec- rehearsal studio in Venice, or Culver okay. City. And you're still your nerds then? No, we were 100 Flowers. Oh, you're 100 that was our Flowers. First 100 so that's flowers the first one. Thing. That's and right. That, it says 100 Flowers on there. And we also did a 100 Flowers track for Life is Ugly, Why Not Kill Yourself, that other Gary compilation. Kale. Gary yeah, Kale. I think Lawndale or Hawthorne. I wonder what happened to him. Zurich, um, nineteen nineteen, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and anti, he had a few bands. Yeah. Um, so and then could, and we went into Orange County Recorders and and worked on uh, Hell Comes to Your House, and uh, uh, the deal with Bemis yourself brand, something something yourself reject yourself reject yourself. Yeah. Great song. We did three songs for them, and the the deal was. They would use one, and we would get to use the other two. That was our payment. Yeah. That's and how we met Ethan James. They chose Reject Yourself. We did the same thing for uh, the for Ethan, video yeah. Tokyo tapes. He says, you give me a song, and I'll record you a song. And we put three of them together because <laughs> our songs were so short. Right. That was just one big song. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up doing Buzzer Howl for $50. The A side was free, and we did the other side. Live Man, you, you, you kind of had to do stuff at a budget like that back then. Really, kind of. We'd even record in order, so we'd save money editing. Uh, used tape. Never recorded during the daytime. Always midnight to six. I wonder if Motley Crue had to deal with these budgetary issues. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, okay, so you do them. Th- where were the other two tunes? Um, they ended up on the 100 Flowers album. Oh, so those are the first songs for the album. But the sing with well, the presence yeah. of mind, is that after the album? We recorded Presence of Mind as part of the album. When we the album was taking so long, we were recording it as we could afford to. So it took months, and we wanted to put something out immediately. So Presence of Mind was one of the earliest songs we did at Orange County Recorders for the album, and we we issued that as a sig, uh, single before the album came out by about a year, I think, something like that. So it was out considerably before the record, but it's from the same section. Okay, okay. Yeah, I remember hearing it. And it sounded like uh, maybe you guys were uh, listening to different stuff. Yeah, I we mean, were. the style, there's a paradigm shift a little bit. Uh, I was listening to a lot of electronic stuff, you know, Cabaret Voltaire, Throbbing Gristle. Oh, yeah. All Mix that kind of stuff. That album. Right. Great album. And uh, we all brought our our interests to bear on that stuff. That's why the material I think is, is kind of unique because everyone was approaching this from a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. And yet there was an aesthetic required by our inability to play real polished, although we got a lot better, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now whose idea was the other side? It's, it's, Oh, the reverse POM. At that time there was a lot of stuff in the media about Satanism Oh, backward masking. Yeah, and so we thought, oh, we got to do this too. This is great. The whole tune, though. <laughs> so we did the whole tune in reverse, and we had Kel affect a satanic voice, 
And um, we thought, this is going to get us into big trouble. This is going to be wonderful. And Kel is saying, uh, Satan commands you, obey, in reverse. So if you play the song forward, you, you hear him say that. But no one ever caught on to it. I was you very disappointed. You do it with the software. Yeah, you probably easier. could. In those days, it was hard to go. But <laughs> as far as I know, no one's picked up on that. That, that was our <laughs> attempt at backward masking. You know, the first songs, uh, you're credited, Kel's credited. Kevin doesn't come in, really, until, uh, I think he's on some of the instrumental, maybe. Even. Yeah. But there's, he has a song on the album. Motorboat to Hell. Yeah. He wrote the lyrics. He and I he sings worked it. on it. Yep, he sang it. Absolutely. <laughs> Did and you Joe have... Nolte plays guitar on that. Oh, wow. The Hooskers told me they had a policy. If you wrote it, you had to sing it. Uh, Did you guys kind of have that? Kind of. Yeah. I, I felt... Uncomfortable. Did you sing Cal lyrics? No, I don't remember singing Cal lyrics more than once or twice. Yeah. I felt like the statement it was too personal. I had to do it myself, and um, I felt more comfortable that way. Did you ever write songs before urinals? Uh, I wrote Surfing with the Shaw, which is an instrumental about a year prior to forming the band on a three-string acoustic guitar I bought at the Salvation Army for 75 cents. <laughs> That was the only oh, song I really properly wrote prior to the urinals. Okay. It's like an art project, you know. Okay, well, now we're going to write songs. You know, we've done films, and now we're going to do this. So, so they were like little films. Yeah, I guess they were. We always looked at our music like films or theater. I always, I always thought it was of another them. way to get out of the rock and roll cliche. Let's just tell, make it. Yeah, it's not music anymore. It's something else. Um, I guess I used to think of them as schematic diagrams yeah. or architecture. Something visual, something with t uh, textural qualities. Yeah. But not not a series of notes on a staff. Not what about like that words? At all. Words were... Uh, I've had a hard you time like with words. like bass parts? Uh, the words, I really wanted to keep them simple at first. And then I kind of lost my way. There was a middle period where I, where I was overwriting too many words, and it, was, it wasn't working. And then more recently, I've gotten back to stripping things down. I really what did you come up with first? Uh, we would come up with the music first. And then put the words. Yeah, because you had to know – you had to have the music in order to figure out where the words were going to fit. So you'd have to write the lyrics where there was space for them, you know? That's what dictated what the lyrical content was going to be, or at least how it was going to be presented. Yeah, yeah. And you're all operate machines, so pretty much there's a pragmatism. And that's another thing. You're you're absolutely right. We're operating machines. When I was writing music, I was thinking in terms of of uh, electronic music. You know, very very regular sort of um, um, uh, industrial sounds. And it didn't come out that way, but that's what what I was thinking. So the title was last. The title was typically last. It was based on the lyrics. Yeah, we'd always start with the title. <laughs> you know, if it works, that's fine. Because it would give the focus yeah. to the tune before we'd have any of the lyrics or the, you got the, or the music. <laughs> Just fill in the blanks. Bob Dylan wrote propaganda songs. Now, you know, you know. can't you hear it? Yeah. <laughs> Bring, make it be so. Well, you, no, I, I seldom knew what the song was going to be about until I actually sat down and tried to fit words in. And then when you started to work with the words, the, the theme would, would come out of that. So it was very organic. Yeah. Okay. I'm always interested in the pr uh, process because I everyone know does it differently. I bet everybody's got their own different way of doing it. Yeah. 
uh, and you guys, sometimes it was kind of uh, oblique, your lyrics. Yes. Sometimes very to the point and uh, a lot of irony. Other times, like, whoa, yeah, what's he singing about? Yeah, I didn't always want it to be obvious. Yeah. I wanted something that would suggest something almost on a subconscious level. Not always, but um, I thought that stuff was the best. It was more poetic, maybe, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense initially. But typically the songs were indeed about something concrete. It just wasn't always apparent. Did you guys listen to the last Yes, we did. We you know I know you have with Vita Sabor to producing and you're doing gigs, which is funny because you can hear it with the harmonies sometimes. Yeah, the harmonies definitely. I think we we figured out oh we can do this like they do. That that may be one of the few things we took from them because their approach was so radically different from ours. Yeah, they're, they're more uh, much more of a pop pop band, right? And listening mode. to '60s and, garage bands. Yeah, and they knew what they were doing too. They were all accomplished musicians. Um. Yeah, our, our approach was quite different, but that's okay. Though. Once again, you know, we we played a lot of bill, bills with those guys. Yeah, we were compatible. So you're like, uh, yeah, you're bouncing off each other. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you couldn't say the urinals or hundred flowers was like the last. But I, I can hear something sometimes with the harmonies. Well, like we were maybe both, they heard these guys. We were both pop bands. We were just a different kind of pop band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you make the album. I guess it's and we uh, promptly split up. <laughs> eponymous is that the word? Because it's the same title, right? As the name of the band. yeah, eponymous, right? And who did that cover? Uh, Joel Roberts, who was a uh, Kel's roommate at the time, who was involved in uh, art school, I believe. He is there a hundred flowers design. on it? Yeah. Okay. It's very literal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I and we had an argument about this. I said, no, no, no. Put ninety nine flowers on there. Don't put a hundred. It's too obvious. <laughs> But I got overruled. Okay, but on the other side, whose ideas was were the pictures? Um, we decided that because the band was composed of three individuals, there should be three individual photographs uh, that were thematically different. So we, each person got to choose how he was presented. Well, you finally got to manifest the no outfits concept. Uh, in that the illustrations are the same size, maybe, but I mean, uh, no, you have no outfit. I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not wearing any outfit at all. I'm totally nude. <laughs> that was your concept. That was my concept. Or did you draw the short straw? Or what? No, I, I was, I was making a. Statement. And then Kevin's behind the bushes. Kevin's behind the bushes, and Kel's running down an alley, <laughs> looking over his shoulder. So it was like we we got to cast ourselves. In an action film or a, a <laughs> sex movie or, or you know, a mystery right, or something. Right. We tripped on that, man. What's this all about? We, you know, them records, they were so crafted. Everything from that scene. It was like more than just a song. The whole package, the, everything well, we got into. People we were thinking about that stuff. You know, they, they actually got to control how they were presented as mm-hmm. opposed to being signed to a major label, which was impossible in our case, obviously. But... Um, that gave us a certain degree of latitude. We got make it very personal and very interesting. Absolutely. I, I it was critical. It. And then you make the record and you break up. We make the record, and it takes us a while. We were talking with Bemis Brain. They were going to put it out. Long then, Beach. Then we decided, yeah, Long Beach. Um, they decided, we we told them, you know, we're going to break up. The, the band, we can't stay together. We're not getting along. 
and they said, okay, well, we're not putting the record out. If we don't have a band to promote the record, there's no point. So once again, we knew we were going to have to do this on our own. Uh, the record came out in, I think, February of 1983, maybe, or 84. See, I'm fuzzy on all this stuff. But any, in any event, it was a month after we had played our final shows at the Anti Club, and you were there. You played yeah. on, on the f- Saturday night, I believe. We had two nights there. And uh, a month later, the record comes out. So our timing was terrible. And then a year later, the follow-up EP came out, <laughs> which we had been recording when we broke up. So, um, you know, the big 12-inch records were both after the band had ceased to exist, which is wow. unfortunate because I think had we stuck together, we could have probably raised our profile considerably. Oh, yeah. Times were changing. Yeah. Uh, you probably would start touring. Mm-hmm. Which is what we did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's play something from the uh, album here. Okay. Uh, Here's a song that I did with uh, Tom Watson. A couple tours. A lot from Pedro Show. Stop. 
Watt from Pedro Show. That's 100 Flowers with All Sexed Up. And we're at the end of the first hour of the December 18, 2005 version of the Watt from Pedro Show. Hope for tight for hour two. December 18, 2005. It's the second hour of the Watt from Pedro Show. Утро 
Блиска, близко, близко Нажимаю на педали Прости Киска Так не хлопают ресницы Хлоп, хлоп, лак, лак Ночное радио вещает Слегка тяжелый просто рок
Watt from Pedro's show. Uh, that was the subs from uh, Beijing. Beijing. China. A song called 8 O'Clock. Before that, this is not a song, T-Storm. T-Storm, a little side uh, thing with your brother. Me and my brother, yeah. Collaboration, your younger brother. Uh, All done by you, all the music, Mm -hmm. uh, in your own pad, your own studio. That's right. So things have evolved, (laughs) but the ethic has stayed the same. Yeah. Do it yourself. And we started off with uh, a band you played, because you guys just played in Beijing, China. Yes. And there was a Russian band on the bill called Mumi Troll, or Troy. I think, you know, we asked them, what is the name of your band? And and everybody pronounced it differently, but I think it's Mumi Troy. Okay. What town? I, I think they're from Moscow. Okay. And the song was called Takbiva. <laughs> I can't say it either. But it, in parentheses, it says it's no accident. So maybe that's the uh, translation. I think, I think that one is Sorry Kitty, maybe. Oh, well, they had. Oh, you know what? Yeah, uh, the the label is is different from the order. On the on oh, the really? Yeah. So <laughs> the <laughs> so English title is, song. is Sorry Kitty, but I don't know what it the was Sorry Kitty <laughs> the Russian translation. Would I be. think he was. Uh, Singing in Russian. Yeah, though. definitely. Sorry, Kitty. Okay. So they did a little uh, prank on us by putting them. They're playing with our heads just like they did <laughs> back when the Iron Curtain was up. Yeah. <laughs> it just won't stop. That's right. Uh, how was it playing in China? It was a blast. We were over there for a week in May doing the... International Pop Festival at Chaoyang Park, and we were the only American band, peculiarly enough. So we were the, our the sole rep- the representatives of our culture. The ambassadors. That's right. And uh, you know there was a band from Russia, Lumi Troy, and there were bands from uh, Sweden and Norway, and a lot a lot of musicians from New Zealand, including a really interesting um, sort of. Uh, Techno, what, what, what is this? It's a Aboriginal techno sort of band. Oh, well, we'll play some. Ma- Maori. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, I dug them a lot. So uh, we were there for a week. We did three shows in this huge outdoor park. It was beautiful. We played uh, a night show and a couple of day shows and... Uh, we played part of the opening ceremony where the the mayor of Beijing was in the front row trying to figure out what what we were doing. And it was it was a really a lot of fun and, and very uh, culturally per- perplexing. Because, yeah, what was your impressions? Um, the, because this this was a big deal. It was sort of a national holiday. Um, a lot of Chinese came in from the hinterlands. They came into Beijing to celebrate. Come to town. And so a lot of these people had not been exposed to any form of Western music. And, and so here was a, an all-in-one smorgasbord of all these people from all over the world coming into play for Beijing. And we were only the real – we were the only punk rock band, certainly, uh, which probably was new to most of them. And I don't think they quite understood what we were doing because we would go up there and do, you know, uh, 18 songs in 45 minutes or whatever, wham, 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 wham. 
and they they required some kind of explanation. So for the final uh, performance that we did, we actually had a translator on stage with us, and we explained, well, this next song is about this, and and you can listen for this, and it, you can sing along if you want, and you clap your hands. And we had to give them permission to respond, essentially, Props. because yeah. So that was odd, but um, you know they they seemed to like us. Uh, apparently the. Ministers of culture were happy with us. Uh, we, we may indeed be going back next year or the year after. We're negotiating with them to find oh, wow. out whether or not we can do that. It was a lot of fun. It was very It was like a state-run thing. Yes, absolutely. Do they have uh, independent clubs? And They do. We went to a club called the... Um, the Highland Highland Bar, the, the No Name Highland Bar was the name of the place. No Name Highland Bar, <laughs> and <laughs> there was a punk rock show with five different, six different bands, five different bands, in like three hours. They would they would share a drum kit and then they'd come up and do a twenty twenty five minute set, get off the stage, and their band would come up, and we saw. These were all local indigenous punk rock bands. They were all really interesting and good, and they had their own perspective on stuff. It was not a uniform approach. There were, women were involved um, as singers and instrumentalists. Uh, there was even an American who led uh, a band. Um, That's living over there? Yeah, as an wow. English teacher. Uh, so there are some Westerners there. What about the uh, equipment? Is there Fenders and Gibsons? Yeah, but they're beat up. Yeah. I don't know how they got a hold of them. Of course, they might be knockoffs for all I can tell. Okay. Everything else seems to be a knockoff. <laughs> but, yeah, the equipment looked pretty battered. I guess they have to share equipment in a lot of instances because um, it's hard for them to transport equipment. So the club will typically have take ownership of the back line, and it'll just live there. And the a lot musicians of will just show cars. up with their own instruments. Yeah. No, typically. We we got there by taxi, and we had a heck of a time finding the place because there are no street addresses. Um, <laughs> you can't say, take me to 395 4th Street or anything like that. You have to say, we're looking for building X in quadrant Y. And you hand you hand a little card, uh, which indicates where you want to go to the cab driver, and he looks at it and scratches his head. And then 20 minutes later, you're in a neighborhood that even he is unfamiliar with. And he'll pull over and get out of the car and say, do you know where this is? And so you you sort of narrow the focus until you finally find the place you're going to. And in this case, he's driving down the street at 20 miles an hour, looking left and right. And suddenly a beer bottle comes sailing out in front of the vehicle and smashes in front of the the car uh, on the street. And we go, okay, we're here. This is it. (laughs) That's how we found the What's the money? Is it Juan? Yeah, it's Juan. Right. And so uh, how does it yeah, <laughs> correspond? Is it Econo? It's like the cab ride. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, it's very affordable. Yeah. It's a very inexpensive. Exchange rate. That's yeah. It's like 8 million yuan <laughs> to the dollar or something. <laughs> we had to do all these mathematical gymnastics in order to like figure out. Like for a beer. You said there was uh, room temperature beer. Yeah, it was probably uh, – it was probably – 16 ounces of room temperature beer for 75 cents or something. I mean, it was very affordable. And to get into the club? That was, um, I, can't, I think it was like 3 or $4 to, for admission. Very inexpensive. It was a fantastic evening. Yeah. What do the people look like? Does it look like 77 era? 
primarily, yeah, there's a lot of black leather jackets yeah. and torn jeans and stuff like that. Um, so it's it's got that kind of vibe to it. Is there a lot of English? Or are they all speaking? Well, what's interesting about it is uh, you'd think that the authorities would frown on punk rock because it's, you know, by nature, right. theoretically rebellious. Um, and indeed, the material that the bands were performing, um, apparently they're allowed to take on controversial subjects so long as they don't sing in Chinese. So if they're singing in Chinese, it's probably about romance or unhappiness, you know, in personal relationships or something. And then they'll sing in English and they'll get a little bit more political. And I think the the thinking is the government doesn't care because the message is not being um, uh, directed toward the population. Local consumption. Yeah. They're not going to know what they're singing about because it's in English. So there's not a lot of English amongst the average person, but uh, no, there's no, there's the not scene. in the scene. There's, you know, very broken English. You were able to talk to cats. We were, uh, we took a videographer with us who shot interviews with some of the people who were involved in this evening where we, uh, we shot about 16 hours of footage, including our performances. And then, you know, do something with it? Yeah, we'd like to. Yeah. We, we'd like to wow. edit it down into something useful. So that may happen. The urinal's ty- uh, urinal's Beijing China. adventure, yeah. yeah. It was a trip. <laughs> well, it'd be great to go back. To go back <clears throat> where we were talking in your uh, career. Mm-hmm. Such as it is. Out when the Hunter Flowers breaks up, you make a band called Radways. You didn't bring any Radways, did you? I did not bring Radways. I'm sorry. Because I know you had an album. Yeah, we, we had an EP, and then we had an, we have an unreleased album that Keith Levine produced or co-produced with Vetus. Oh, I'd love to hear that, man. I will get you. You got to flow me that. Yeah, I will. Yeah, because he was living in L.A. for a bit. I know. Yes, right. Uh, Radways, Kevin was in. It was an interesting concept. They took a drum set and parted it out. So you had a guy on a tom, you had a guy on a snare or a lady. Uh, a kick drum guy. <laughs> he just played this big thing. And then uh, John on the bass and Michael. Michael Corey on the guitar. guitar. We had four drummers, guitar and and uh, and bass. Yeah. And uh, big sound. We did a lot of ba- uh, gigs with them. Uh, Music Machine. Yeah. A lot of those. Uh, but then uh, that band breaks up. Yeah. We, like we made say, an album and then there's an unreleased album. Right. And then... Uh, was that your band, or is it Michael's? It was you... Michael and mine. We, okay. we, we got together and we wrote songs for a year with his drum machine, and then we assembled the band. It was his idea to do the big drum core kind of thing, so I was really skeptical. I just thought, well, all you need is three people. You don't really need five. <laughs> More you know, room in the boat. It's <laughs> a lot of ego, too, you know? Yeah, oh, yeah. There's <laughs> always that. So um, personality. But it was fun. I mean, when when we were on, it was this huge, glorious noise. It was wonderful. But that thing comes to an end. Yeah, and I at that point I was in Trotsky Ice Pick. I was oh the, Trotsky. That happened kind of concurrently. I was okay. in Radways for a few years, and then I was asked to join Trotsky. They felt they wanted a singer. And that was Vetus's band. Vetus and Kel. Okay. Yeah, that and they had already put out like three albums, and I was asked to join for and not on bass. You were lead singer. Just singing. Roger Daltrey. And lyrics. Mode. Yeah. 
microphone swinging. So I was in both those bands at the same time for a while. And yeah. Radway spoke up. <coughs> Trotsky perseveres yeah. and keeps going as we did Radway about, stands. We did four albums while I was with them. So Four albums, yeah. And, and a couple touring. of U.S. tours. And yeah, I know Firehose played with Trotsky a bunch of times. Uh, yeah, and we played in Minneapolis. You were in the That's right. You were in the big room. We were in the little room. But it was the same night. I played m- b- both rooms many times. In fact, I just played there. Yeah, just same last room. night, right? Yeah. Was it snowing there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, but no storm. That's it was good. still colder, which is tit in a brass bra. <laughs> <laughs> Brother Matt lent me a coat, which helped out big time, because I don't really have you know, it's Winter funny, wear. we're so used to Southern California weather. Oh, yeah, it was 52 last night, and people were at the gig, ooh, it's cold. <laughs> 52 is like, you know, sauna, schwitz for those cats. We were up Midwest. in, uh, we were playing Green Bay once, and um, yeah, that's a cold. it was in October. We were freezing. I had to go and buy a, a coat on this midway through this tour just for that one evening. And we show up at the club, and we're, you know, wrapped up in layers and layers and layers of stuff. And the kids are showing up in T-shirts and shorts, and we're going, what is this? How can you wear it? They're acclimated. It's what it is. I know. I played up in uh, Missoula, Montana. And if it's not snowing, you know, it's good weather. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) These guys are in T-shirts. That's what you're used to. Okay, yeah, it's not snowing, but come on. (laughs) But, yeah, they're used to it. They're used to it. Still, everything, place has its beauty and stuff. But there's something about Cali, <laughs> I think. It's easier to live here, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's easier. Say from the occasional I never even use a heater. Even, yeah, you know, frigid 50 degrees. But I can still hang. I use two blankies on a deck instead of one. <laughs> so we're going to play some Trotsky Ice Pick. And what's this from? This is from the Odds and Sods record that came out after the band broke up, Hot Pop Hello. And this is... Uh, track that john rosewall the bass player uh who had been in the last wrote yeah, and then i i wrote the lyrics and sing he's on a tall it. guy yeah and it's called natchez it's about natchez mississippi the town right on the river mississippi um so this thing has come out kind of recently and it's a well, it didn't. It came out... Uh, oh, back then, but it's it was never part of an album. It's odds and ends. Yeah, these are unreleased pieces from the entire career of the band. And this is the band that Kel made with Vetus after Hunter Flowers. Yes. And you end up joining. Right. Oh, yeah, Mike Patton was in the band, too. He was. I remember. We went from the middle class, him. not the uh, Faith No More Mike Patton. Right. But... Our very own SoCal Mike Patton, who I haven't seen for years. Man, I wonder what he's doing. He's a great bass player. <clears throat> Middle Class was like one of the first Orange County bands to play with punk scene. They were like the fastest band on earth for a right, moment there. Right, at the yeah, time. They were amazing. Yeah, but they had a paradigm shift, too. Yeah, they did. They, they discovered white they funk. They were like three brothers and Mike Patton. Yeah. And, uh, and there was the Simple Tones, and they, those were the only Orange County bands. Really, I think the weasels might have been. It's Peter with a the ring. Weasels used to have these uh, <laughs> English accents. Well, yeah, you know, Mike Ness <laughs> early on sounded like he was from England. <laughs> My wife Kathy refers to that accent as Fullerton on Thames. <laughs> the w- weasels' big song was "Peter with the Rake." <laughs> <laughs> 
Make her pay, pay for, for her mistake. mistake. <laughs> ah, those were the days. <laughs> oh, they're poets, don't you know it? They're feet show. It's they're Longfellows. Anyway, here's some uh, Trotsky Ice Pick. Uh, what from Pedro Show?
much junk inside It's time to clean this house Either that or burn it down and start it again You see in every life The many little deaths You clutch some of them close Close them away I'm talking metaphor I hope you realize I'm talking sandwiches of hope With garnishes of hope Stars whirl around over my head There's action in the brush That near the dark bowers A possum family digging for grubs And in the cactuses A spider spinning bright Near punctuating spines And unworld Right there, that was Zvina Kava. Now, John, that was a um, project you did after Rad Waste and uh, during your tenure with uh, Trotsky Ice Pick. Yeah. And who, it was a trio. That was me and Debbie Spinelli from Rad Waste and David Nolte, who had been in The Last and then later Wednesday Week. Right. And a song called Garden, uh, Seven Inch. Uh-huh, yep. And that's the only thing released by Vina Kava. Yes, it is. 
we got a bunch of other tracks. Yeah, you had 12 songs. So we'll play more of that. Uh, How long that last? That was probably going for about three years. It was it was a lot of fun, but yeah, but it was kind of unsustainable because David was getting more busy with other projects, and yeah, you know he he eventually uh, took over for Kel. in the urinals in like 98 for a couple of weeks when we went on tour with mud honey and then he had to run off and now he's, he's working with David gray and he was work. He had been working with Dave Davies from the kinks and he's been very, very busy with this stuff. His wow. career has really taken off and side mouse. It's good for him. He's fantastic. And there was another brother. There was uh, oh, in the, in the Nulties. Yeah. Yeah. There was Mike, Mike vocalist, Mike, yeah, just tambourine. Yeah, and which background was pre- vocals. Pretty, uh, yeah, tambourine and vocals, yeah. which was pretty unusual for not the lead singer. He just comes in to do the harmonies. And... Right. That's the way Mike wrote those songs. Uh, I mean, no, Joe wrote those songs. Yeah, me. Dave, I remember seeing him with the last. He was very young. Uh-huh. And Joe had to tune his bass on the stage, <laughs> which, you know, coming from arena rock, that was such a mind blow to see that. Like, Whoa. <laughs> that's pretty funny yeah, I think like, David knows how to tune his bass now. oh yeah yeah I mean but I he, he, was, he had to be a young teenager at the time I think he was in high school yeah when they started playing yeah and yeah the joke goes over there well, he paints <laughs> on his guitar I mean the whole thing was pretty intense for us uh, knowing only corporate rock and, and not even being into a club the club thing had disappeared you know oh, it's so refreshing you know I, I mean I, I grew up with that whole aesthetic as well and then Moving to Los Angeles and going to the Whiskey A Go Go and seeing, you know, real bands sweating on stage and, and bands like the Alley Cats, for instance, yeah. just it just blows away your your preconceptions about what rock is supposed to be. It was so refreshing. Yeah, it was uh, iconoclastic for us, to say the least. <laughs> I think I saw the last, and the nerves were on the bill, and the guy runs off the stage, and he didn't unplug his guitar, and he drags his amp. <laughs> up those stairs. <laughs> I was like, whoa, this is a scene. <laughs> this is a, quite a scene. And uh, we started the second hour with Natchez, a Trotsky Ice Pick. Um, what's it called? Hello? Pop, hot, excuse me, Hot Pop Hello. Which is hot a, Pop Hello. It's an, a uh, compilation an, of odds and ends. From it's a name band. that my parrot came up with. <laughs> okay. Now, that, that experience... Uh, being in a band where you're not working the machine, being, quote, front man, unquote. Yeah. What was that like? Very awkward. I didn't know what to do with my hands. I had to reinvent myself. I had to find a new persona. And uh, I never really felt comfortable with it, I, which is why I'm back to playing bass. <laughs> but uh, I just didn't know how to present myself. I was supposed to be the visual focus of the band, and I just didn't feel like... Uh, I was that interesting. <laughs> well, did you flirt with the idea of outfits? Um, you know, when we were touring, I would go to thrift stores and look for stuff to wear that night. And I would try and find the most hideous, you know, loungewear. Um, <laughs> probably not a good idea, really. Ian D. Boone had very little respect for frontmen as young guys because they didn't work a machine. And so it was like, whoa, how superfluous. Oh, if you're Tom Jones, it's one thing. But if you're... You know, somebody fronting a pop combo. It's a different animal entirely. Yeah, but the whole idea of not not having, having a machine. A machine yeah. And uh, 
uh, working first with Perry and now with Iggy. I got a, a new bend on it though that I didn't really was. Uh, you either got that in or you, tune you with. Don't. It's 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 an it's a it's a trippy thing. They're kind of a conductor more. Did mm. you like conduct Trotsky? Definitely Iggy and Perry conduct no, no, their bands. I, I didn't know what to do with myself, honestly. Uh, and they're kind of a bridge to the people because they don't have machines either. Right. So it's a weird kind of. And so I have a new perspective on them they didn't have when I was younger. Probably by doing it with because we never did it. Uh, the reactionaries had a front man for a while, and that's one reason why D Boone broke up the band and we started again as Minutemen because it was like, what do you need this guy without a machine? But uh, I have a new appreciation for it. It's, it's, in fact, it's scary. You have, like you're saying, you didn't know what to do with your hands. Mm -hmm. I heard that's why a lot of bands, the singer would take a guitar and even though he didn't play it a lot, he had something to hold. I hadn't thought of that. The guy, I read an interview with the Mott the Hoople singer, uh, Ian Hunter, Ian Hunter. and he said that's why he had it. Oh, he he never really played play it. a lot. He just had something to hold on to, you know, because it looks yeah, good. you're out there, and do, yeah, do you do the Daltrey thing with the <laughs> microphone? And, oh, see, if I had done that and just kept it uh, turned off, it would have been entirely different. <laughs> and I could have smashed it and everything. That would have been great. I think you have to have the right kind of personality in order to be a front man, and you have to. You have to be able to communicate well with your audience and get them all jazzed up. And everything. Yeah, you need wavos like church bells, too. <laughs> it is so weird. Uh, although then there's the guys like uh, Mark Smith with the fall. I mean, he just turns his back, right. stares at the kick drum. Yeah, you get some booty brunch. So, and well, there's a, a lot of different ways of handling it, I guess. But it is a seriously uh, frightening Gig to pull. You've never done that, have you? No. I did it. I was asked to come up for one song once with Cobra Verde. And I tried to swing the mic, but it was, the cord was wrapped around the stand. I couldn't get it off, so it was tiny swings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that was just as good. <laughs> yeah, it was very awkward. Very uh, pocket watch style. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, brother Matt, thanks. <laughs> so, so uh, you did some tours with them, and uh, you scissor that, you cut that loose, you go back to urinals. Yeah, now, uh, all this time I've been uh, recording with uh, John Glogovac, who is in Trotsky Ice Pick, as an electronic duo, which and we've recorded over four hours of stuff since 1983, uh, which oh, is something wow. I continue to do every week. We get together and we record. Do you have a name stuff. for it? Uniblab. Uniblab. And I have some of that, which we can play. We'll later. play that later. But um, so I, I was I was active in music, but I wasn't performing for a couple of years after after Trotsky and Bradwaist and Vina Kava had all broken up. Um, and then in '96 we reformed the Urinals. We went back to the very beginning of our musical careers and and started with the most the earliest material and started performing again and and got a lot of attention for that locally so um continued with it even went back to the name urinals yeah. instead of hunter flowers we wanted to start from the very beginning to clear all the cobwebs away you know and uh started writing new stuff and then kel left in 98 uh after two years of this decided to do Solo material. Kel band. Yeah, he's done. He's got a Kel, the Kel Johansson band. He's recorded a couple of records. Um, 
And Kevin and I wanted to continue with the urinals, so we got David Nolte to fill in for a tour with Mud Honey. And then when that was over, David had some offers from Europe and went to work with Dave Davies and David Gray. And so we found ourselves in need of a guitarist again. And we got Rod Barker, who had been in Ten Foot Faces, who was phenomenal. And uh, he was with us from 98 until earlier this year. So he was with us for a good seven years. Uh, Recorded a new album that we heard at the top of the show. And, uh, you know, played Beijing and did some West Coast tours. And it was a lot of fun. When you came back with Caleb before he bailed. Uh Uh-huh. What, it was like two years? Yeah, 96 through 98, yeah. Did you record during that time? We recorded demos, but we didn't record an album. What's the one I got? It's probably one of the demos. The four song? With the wood burning. Wood, yeah, that's Kel. That's Kel. Yeah, I played those on the show. David Nolte produced that. Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to play some of the newer stuff, and we'll get to the Uniblab. Some of the Uniblab goes back to 80s. It does. No, no, no. I'm sorry. 92 is when we started. 92. Yeah. 92, so we'll play that later. But first, it's my honor, privilege to bring on Brother Matt and Spin Cycle. Oh, thank you. What does that mean?
a dance that also was weird. I was born in the country. I was raised in town. I can naturally bone shake it from my hips on down. Ah, 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 ah,
Thank you.
uh, December 18th, 2005. It's the third hour of the Watt from Pedro show. Here's part G of Moon Over Morocco. Jack Flanders has reappeared in a different world. He met a gatekeeper who led him through the darkness to the edge of the desert. From there, Jack continued alone till he came upon a campfire. Seated near the fire was a storyteller, telling the story of Jack approaching the campfire with the storyteller, telling the story of Jack approaching the campfire. Then around the fire, men appeared. Jack and the men mounted horses and rode off into the desert night. It's late at night, warm out, pretty quiet, except for me, I'm talking. I'm Kazbah Kelly. The katydids are really active this time of year. Mojo and I are sitting in the back of the Cafe of the One Bridge. Sunny Skies is at the El Maghrib Hotel. We're waiting to see if anything will happen to her. There's a stream that runs through here. That's what you're hearing. It runs under the one bridge. Sonny has the phone number if anything should happen. What do you think? I was thinking, boss, that back in the U.S., it's possible to operate in straight lines. But here, no way. Ain't gonna happen no way at all. You think you can do any more yogic projections? Tune in on Jack? When it feels right, I, I think so. Mojo, there's a lot of things we never talk about. You know. But I was wondering, just how seriously are you involved in Magic Sahar? I mean... Well, boss, it's hard to know anything without doing it or being it. But it's funny that people don't know that magical and mystical is very close. Magical and mystical? How do you mean? You know what Miss Guy said about how the contest explained uh, the different bodies we have, astral and physical and all those? Well, magic makes conscious use of that for the transmission of the will. They say Sahar, uh, the transmission of the will, as you call it, doesn't affect Europeans. Yeah, well, pretty true, boss. You see, uh, our astral bodies pick up vibrations like a flycatcher. The Moroccans probably got a super-sensitive astral vibrator going. You know how they know when someone's putting a spell on them? Well, to do that, there's usually some property of theirs, a hair or something that's being used. It's the link. 
what's called the magical link, you see? It's because the Moroccans believe the Europeans don't have souls, so Sahar doesn't work on us. Ah. Their women don't have souls either, boss. But that don't stop them from throwing the heckers at each other. And then what's the reason? Uh, it's like a game of chess. Yeah, everything's like a game of chess. That's right, boss, but you can't use chessmen against some other guy unless he agrees to use them in the same sense as you do. The Moroccans say the Europeans use a different board. So Sahar is a matter of will and coupled with energy behind it and the type of talisman you use. Take, for example, suppose I want to win a woman who can't stand the sight of me. Not only that, she loves somebody else. So I got to overcome not only her will, but her lovers too. I got no direct control over either one, you see. And all kinds of errors in the transmission of my will might happen. There can be a misunderstanding, a, a mood can make a lot of mischief. External events, the lover may match me in magic, the operation may offend nature and woman. Wait, wait, wait a minute, what do you mean, offend nature? Maybe there's a subconscious incompatibility between me and the woman. Like, like I deceive myself into thinking I desire her. No effort of will can make oil mix with water. So they figure there are no magical links that can be used on Europeans. Sukio. Yeah, well, the old ladies and their herbs, of course. They'll affect anyone. Yeah, but Sukio will get you in the right state, psychic state. And that's their magical link for the will. So they can do their influence. Then you don't think it's possible for a Moroccan to affect a Westerner with the usual talisman? Sure. If you got... If you got a letter... They could compromise some guy. That puts him in a worried state of mind. You can set up the link, you see. Anything can serve as a magical weapon. You want to impose your will on a nation? Your talisman could be a newspaper. Your triangle could be a church. Your circle, an organization you belong to. Your wine may be a playwright's pen. And your incantation, a rock and roll song. Many ends, many means, boss. Then you always have to have the magical link. No, but you gotta be real good. You can't produce no thunderstorm unless the materials exist in the air. See? I wonder what that is. Listen, that's not far away. I wonder if Kelly would be angry if I went down there. I hate being stuffed up here, waiting for something to happen. 
Why not? was enormous. Must have been a hawk or something. Its wings were enormous. There's someone standing over there, watching me. An old woman. I think I'll call Kelly. Hello? It took you a while to answer. Kelly? Oh. I was just out of the room for a minute. Everything's okay? Yes. I heard some lovely music coming from somewhere. Other than that, I've just been listening to the radio. Okay. I'm going back to my place. If you need me, phone me. I'll be there. It seems so peaceful. Boring, actually. Do you really think it's worthwhile? You're forgetting hotel phones? Yeah. Thanks for calling. Say hello to Mojo for me. Yeah, I will. Good night, Kelly. Good night. She's okay. Nothing. All's quiet. Oh, she says hello. <laughs> yeah. She's a nice girl, boss. Mojo, there was one thing you said that I didn't quite understand. That thing about magic and mysticism. Something about what the Contessa told Sonny. It's the bodies we have. When you use magic... Like to affect your will on someone, you directly, well, like a talisman. Maybe it's a lock of hair or a handkerchief, but it's connected with their aura. Like the one about the girl and her lover, you may attack her astrally so that her aura becomes uneasy, so that she doesn't respond to her lover. Unless they figure out the cause, they may quarrel. And that's when you move in. Mm, you know, it, it strikes me that there's something wrong imposing one's will on someone else. It's not necessarily wrong, boss. Those moral judgments are made by people on the outside. You see, every magician knows that he's got the golden rule or the law of karma to deal with. Or call it anything, conscience. What it comes down to is simple. Whatever I do to another, I also do to myself. I see. Yeah. Like old Alistair Crowley used to say, every vibration awakens all others of its particular pitch. Well, should we go? Sure. The Berbers have a saying, boss. Better a handful of dry dates and content with that than to own the gate of peacocks and be kicked in the eye by a broody camel. <laughs> <laughs> I 
shines in the absence of the sun. Do not strike a rail with your fist, nor mistake the sun for the puff of a candle. I don't know what it is, but the water is definitely rising. Shouldn't we get moving? Something ominous about this place. Maybe we better get going. Yeah. We should. Where will we go? High ground. Look at the way the water's rising. This whole place is going to turn into a swamp. Please, can we go? Yeah. The road was narrow. Just two tire tracks with grass in between. It was filling with water. Animals ran before us along the tire tracks. You could feel the woods, the air. It was panic. And there was nothing we could do but follow this narrow road and hope that it led to higher ground. Where will we go? To the docks. There are boats down there. We arrived at the docks. The boats were swarming with people. More and more people were leaping on while you could see the sides of the boats sinking lower and lower in the water. Now, what do you say we join the rest of the rats? Let's hurry. Just hang on to my hand. We're liable to get torn apart in this mob. I could feel that he was reluctant to climb on board. The way people kept forcing themselves on, it looked like they might all sink. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm staying behind. Please, Jack, come on. No. And he turned and walked away. I didn't know what to do. My impulse was to join the others on the boats. But I didn't. There was something so peaceful about him. The way he walked away. I followed him. It was a dirt road that led down through a wall. It looked like the Great Wall and Ramparts at Marrakesh. And then I heard someone singing. And through the ancient gateway came this figure seven feet tall, dressed in white. I recognized him as Bhagwan Das. He was singing and others were behind him following. He looked Christ-like and he had everything under control. Shall we follow him? You don't think he has his own boat? <laughs> Not the kind you're thinking of. Let's see where it goes. We followed Bhagwan and soon found ourselves inside a building. It was round and had a dome, a lot of windows. There were other people there. 
Everyone seemed to be so cool, so together. I thought it was just like those spiritual people to be putting on that act, while the rest of the people scrambled for the boats. Did you still want to run for the boats? You bet. But for some reason, I figured I'd stay a little longer and see what they're up to. And there was no question about Jack. He seemed as content there as anywhere. So, we sat in a large circle and held hands. All the time, Bhagavan was singing. Then everyone stretched out flat on their backs so their feet touched, and stretched out their arms so their hands touched. And I suppose from above, we looked like the opening of the petals of an enormous flower. Was uh, Bhagavan Das the leader? I don't think so. The impression I had was that they were all spiritual people and from different groups. But everyone just knew what to do. I felt very strange there. So, anyway, the building began to shake harder and harder. And there was no question that this was the end. The real end. And then, in the dome above, we saw these faces of giant animals. Birds and owls and ostriches and camels. I don't know. And, and they were looking down on us, and everyone went, oh, when they saw them. And I knew that this was it. And suddenly this music came on, and the lights came on, and there was this voice. This portion of The End of the World has been brought to you by General Motors. It was a film we'd been watching. That's some dream. Yeah, it sure was. You know, you know, I think I got a glimpse of what happened to Jack. You did? No, I don't mean it that way. I mean, having your frame of reference dissolve leaves you in a strange state. Abu, what manner of camp is this? In this camp is the child Flossik. Little Flossik, the child of magic. Well, what need do we have of her? You have been long away, son of El Kaba. We must have a reading of the sands. This role is so strange to me. Son of El Kaba. Oh, is this the child's tent? Yes. Little Flossik, child of magic. Stand in the presence of the true son of El Kaba. Oh, can that stuff, Abu? Sit down and relax, El Kaba. Oh, thank you. Things are still so vague. I feel like I've been spit out of the womb. My dream still lingers. You take it easy. When you're parked out in the middle of a dream, it gets a little disconcerting. Hmm. Say, you have a fire stick? Fire stick? Oh, you mean a match? Oh, sure, somewhere. Needless to say, I'm called Flossik, little Flossik, and I can read the sands. I can also read pebbles, rocks, blacks of turtles, jackrabbit whiskers, you name it. I'll read it. Sand will be fine. Oh, here's your match. <laughs> ah, <clears throat> nothing like a good cigar before a little magic. Yep, 
I was born with a knack. I'd like uh, to see that golden eye you're carrying. Hmm? Oh, sure. Certainly here. Its magic is feeble. Feeble? Yeah, like a symbol, unused. And yet, I can feel its powers may be terrifying. Terrifying? Depends upon whose hands it's in. Anyway, you better get this thing charged. Don't hide it in the fur of your chest. Wear it in the light. Here, on the turban. Up, between the two eyes. There. Oh, wow. Yeah. <sighs> now the desert sun may reflect upon me. Golden eye of El Kabah. <clears throat> Oh, I don't blame you. Whoever designed these tents didn't have cigars in mind. We have come for the sands to be that. Oh, don't be an old stiff shirt, Abu. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Silence. We cast the sands. We live only because he looks upon us as jackals. We are less than the dust upon the tips enough, of... Enough, 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 Fabu. How do we know he truly exists? His realm is yet different from ours. Pilgrims that wish to make the journey to the fabled Mazamuda must cross his realm. And none return. He sees himself an equal to Allah. May Allah forgive me. I see. Here is Queen, Queen Asoa. Her magic is most powerful. She is a spinner of illusion. They say that even Mustafa, the great storyteller, holds her in very high esteem. Storyteller. Let us see what else. One lump or two? Two. Tell me, how large is the Sahara Desert? Well, it stretches clear across Africa, from the Red Sea to the Atlantic Ocean. How large is that? It's hard for people to visualize how big that desert really is. 
I mean, how would you like to trek across the state of Texas on a camel? <laughs> but you could take the United States and drop it into the Sahara, and you'd still have Sahara left over. It's big. Catch the halter rope, and it will lead you to the donkey. Mojo gets in the taxi and chases the old Fatma, but... Yes? Yes? I mean, uh, yes, thank you. Goodbye. A seance. She's gonna try to make contact with Jack. That should be interesting. I wonder who's gonna act as the medium. Hm. I'll bet Mojo can do a better job. If he'd only try projecting on his wall again. Oh, well. What is that burger saying? Ah, manage with bread and butter till God brings the jam. Fat Matajim ain't gonna slip away so easy this time. Wish you could see my disguise. Next to invisible. I could ride an elephant into Mecca and no one know the difference. Damn, come on, kid. Can't you see I'm a poor beggar? Beat it, kid. I'm invisible. There she goes, all right. Here's a doom. Here's two doom. Gonna lose it this time. Ah, I am so happy you have come, Mademoiselle Skies. Thank you. I've always been intrigued by the idea of a seance. We oui. we shall have tea upstairs. Come. Ah, timing is perfect. Look, the tea is poured. Lemon, oui? Yes, thank you. Uh, will we have the séance here? No, 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 no. A closed room. The lady, the uh, medium, she hasn't arrived? Any moment. Now, drink the tea and relax. Ah, that is right. That old woman's getting into a taxi. I'd better step on it. Taxi! Taxi! Hey, man, follow that vehicle. Hiya, man. Finish the rest of your tea. She will arrive very, very soon. Oh, your tea certainly has relaxed me. Ah. You know, I've been wanting to ask no, you... No, 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 no. We must rest our minds for peace mm. to enter. For silence. Another day we will talk. But now we relax. We listen to our hearts. We listen to our breath. Ah. We listen to the ever-present sound of all. Come on, man, don't lose her. Ha ha! I follow ten years, never escape. Not once. Now one better than Abdullah. They call me one banjo or a Morocco. No one can make turn pasta. Whee! 
feel strange. Ill, I think. I'm sorry, Comtesse. Oh, I, I no, hope no, this no, won't. No, 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 The Moroccan food is still new to you. One's body must adjust to the difference. Take my arm. We will go into the study. It will be cool and dark there. Thank to you. Relax. Oh, oh, oh. Sorry. My knees are a little wobbly. I'm afraid. Step very slowly, my dear. In a moment, you will feel much better. I am certain. Certain. Slowly. Whoopee! Quick! No! Watch this! Watch out! Son of a dog! What was that demon? I don't know. It was awfully big. Big? That black shadow of a buzzard? It must have been a hawk. Well, I lost her. Again. I am arrived. She's sleeping. She drinks. We will everything. Good. You will believe this will work. It is you that should have known. But the eye? How was I to know? Monsieur Flander never tell me. In fact, I gave him your address and you never know either. It's not my fault. It must be your fault. Nothing is my fault. Let us not argue further. All we know is that Jacques was wearing the eye when he disappeared. There are so many centuries. El Cabazai so close. Shut. She will not proceed with the girl. We shall proceed. I lost her, boss. Again? She was going out of town. In a taxi. And I followed. And we lost her. I, I've been over in the cafe. Uh, maybe there's nothing to her after all. You seen Miss Sunny? She said La Contessa di Zazzinia phoned and invited her for tea. She's coming back here. How did the Contessa know she was staying at that hotel? Hmm. Well, uh, Sonny must have told her. I guess. Sonny, how... Hey, are you all right? I'm okay. You're pale. It must have been something I ate. I'm all right now. And where did you eat? La Contessa's? No, it was probably something I bought. Maybe the yogurt. Well, uh, anything happened with the seance? I don't know, really. Apparently it was a failure. Hmm. Who was the medium? It was so dark in there. I don't remember much, really. I saw a street. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't feeling very good, and it was dark, and the old woman, the medium, had gone into her trance. It was getting awful stuffy. I thought I was going to throw up, and I could hardly breathe. And then... I must have dozed. I had a dream. One of those sort of twilight dreams when you swear you're awake. I was walking along, and it was just a couple blocks from the hotel, and suddenly I saw a street. 
I'd never seen before, and it was beautiful. There were there were hedges filled with flowers and walls that sort of curved in and out, and palm trees, and there were birds singing, and banana trees, and a lovely fountain right in the middle. It was absolutely enchanting. And and that's all. Hmm. Excuse me, but if you should be walking along someday and you see such a street, don't walk down it. Oh, Mojo, it was just a dream. No matter how tempting, don't enter. <laughs> Come on, Mojo. Yeah, really. You're turning into a real Moroccan. He means I'm superstitious. I know. No, no, that's not quite what I meant. It's all right, Mojo. I'll remember what you said, Kelly. Can we go for a walk? I need to clear my head. Sure. Fog's moving in again. This. What? What was that Mojo said? Casablanca's in the heart. It's all in the heart, isn't it? Mm, yeah. This air is so fantastic. I feel much better, Cosba Kelly. Beggars even out on the beach. That gets to me, you know. How do you cope with the poverty here? Every European town has a slum outside. I know we have slums back home, but. It's not the same as. Yeah, it's only the Europeans that make the slums. Oh, really, Kelly? By changing the life. Yeah, but but how do you? Look, before, everyone had his place and was settled, and then the French came. They created a demand for workers in the cities, so everyone left his farms and places in the mountains and deserts and came to the cities. Mm. But they couldn't get in to live in the cities. There was no place for them, so they built shacks outside. And then came more, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. It's all ruined. The French created this proletariat, which suddenly was no longer needed when the French left, because there was no more work. And now the country's a mess. All uprooted people, no longer know how to live their old lives because a new generation has been born. Yeah, they're uprooted. That's all. Thanks to the Europeans. Bob, the deepest thoughts you've ever heard in your life. 
sensory receptors, which when stimulated, direct messages of sexual arousal to the brain. Many of these are concentrated in the body's most responsive areas, the erogenous zones. One of these, the man's penis, is densely packed with sensory receptors, here seen at enormous magnification. On cross-examination, that witness admitted he once told a different story to detectives. Thank you.
Watt from Pedro Show. Uh, that's the rub with a thousand days. John, you produced that. Yes, indeed. Back in the when was that? Eighty, the mid to late eighties, I guess it was, around Radway's time. Okay. What do you like about producing? Uh, I like coming up. I like working on the textures. Uh, I'm not an engineer, so I don't know the technical elements of what I'm doing. But uh, Vitas was engineering that, and he's excellent, and he speaks my language. He lets me make stupid comments like, I need a little bit more warmth, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> warmth. Yeah. Um, before that, we had... Uh, that was Uniblab. Uniblab with Sledgehammer Rendezvous. Yeah, that's me and John Glogovac from Trotsky Ice Pick and Smart Brown Handbag. <laughs> that's a great name. <laughs> um, yeah, electronic music. So uh, you've been doing this a while. I've been doing this since Trotsky broke up in 93 or 94 with John, the two of us. Every week we get together and we record, like, typically Wednesday nights. And we've just been doing it for a really long time, building up these minute little electronic uh, symphonies. So it's just something that we do for ourselves. It's experimental. Yeah. Get to learn the equipment, play around with ideas. But none of it's ever been released or anything. It might be at some point, but yeah. that's not the goal. Some of it just went over the Watt from Pedro show. Oh, so now we're going to get all sorts of fan mail. Yeah. Uh, you got a reissue? In yeah. fact, I wanted to have you on the show when you had your big release party for this. Re-release of Keats' Ride of Harley in a CD version, but twice as long. That's right. It was a sampler, the Happy Squid label. That's from 1981. We just yeah. reissued it. It's got the... Um, Nine original songs by a bunch of bands people probably have heard of, like The Gun Club and Meat Puppets and Human Hands and Went Under Flowers and Leaving Trains. Toxic Shot with Tom Watson. That's right, Tom Watson. And uh, we've essentially doubled the material. Every band has got an, an alternate song on there now. So instead of one track by nine bands, we have 18 tracks by nine bands plus a reissue of our very first compilation, the Happy Squid Sampler. Right. With the Vidiots, Rick L. Rick. Yeah. Urinals. I played that a couple of weeks ago. Very early Trotsky Ice Pick thing by Danny and the, and the Doorknobs, which is essentially Vetus. Uh, Phil Bedell. That's who that was. I always wondered about that band. Yeah. It's kind of pre-Trotsky. <laughs> pre-Trotsky. It's Vetus doing it's a, a solo thing when he was in the, in the last. Right. So we put it out. Right. Well, um, here, let's play some of it right here. We're going to play a Meat Puppet song and then a Hundred Flower song. Watt from Pedro Show.
from Pedro Show. That's 100 Flowers with Salmonella. Before that, H. Eleanor, Meat Puppets, which John informs me had lyrics. <laughs> I've seen them. I know they are lyrics there. Actual, actual lyrics. So, John, future plans? Um, for the moment, the urinals are on hiatus. Um, we don't have a guitar player. We'll probably get one at some point in the future, but Kevin and I are right now concentrating on a different project, another three-piece called The Chairs of Perception with um, Rob Roberts, the novelist and musician. So right now we're writing material. We hope to start performing January and February, maybe do some uh, recording as well. So it's going to be another three-piece, but slightly different vibe. Still punk rock, because that's all I know how to write, but, you know... It'll be different. Okay. And I uh, can't wait to hear it. Uh, you're going to continue with the Uniblab? Yes. And uh, But nobody knows about that, so it's kind of off the radar. But it's out there. Well, they know now. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. And the website for your label? Happysquid.com. Okay. So check it out. Lots of good music there. I wanted to uh, 
ask you about your film stuff because oh, you yeah. went to school for film. Yes. And you've continued to do it all these years. No, I haven't really. Um, In spurts. Oh, you laid off. Little, yeah, projects here and there. I mean, we did a Minutemen video, yep. as you'll recall. Great, for Ack, Ack, Ack. And, um, We're actually, the pre and post stuff is longer than the tune. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that was from some jam session you guys were doing, right? They were yeah. just kind of fooling around, and we used that as incidental music for the video. And when we were doing uh, Buzzer Hal, and used incidental music. That really worked out where well. Where we're set, like Three Stooges people sent to clean a record executive office and we <laughs> take it apart. Polarity ensues. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like that Three Stooges where they ask, uh, this guy says, I want this wallpaper. This <laughs> Did you ever think that? They wallpaper over the <laughs> everything, the TV. The, the next scene you see the guy trying to push the door. He They've wallpapered over the door. And Moe's like, what's wrong? You know? Well, they were constructing, oh. and you guys were deconstructing. <laughs> Remember we had a big sledgehammer that, that George used to put yeah, a Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, Those are the old SST offices, right? Right, and we were moving, so we got to use we it. We got to destroy the, it. The final scene is George <laughs> prying D. Boone's head out of the wall with a two-by-four. <laughs> right on the last act, you edited it. That's so great. That was a lot of fun. The whole thing. Super 8, man. That's the way to go. Super 8, yeah. And I know you've had little things where you show your... Uh, we have a, we have an annual party where we yeah. show Super 8 and stuff at, at home. But uh, I did a lot of Super 8 videos, um, sorry, movies, like 35 or 36 of them before I even went to film school at UCLA. And then I made th- two or three 16-millimeter movies there that I periodically show around. Um, and then the video projects we've been working on, I haven't really been directing or anything. I've, I shot a film for Kevin way back when. Um we of course issued the urinals. Li- I'm sorry, 100 Flowers Live at Club Lingerie video. Oh wow, that'd be neat to see. Which I didn't have a whole lot to do with, but that's going to come out on DVD, I believe, in 2006. We're working on getting that mastered for digital. Having it. And then there's the stuff we shot in Beijing, which I hope to turn into something. Yeah, that's that 16 would be hours great. worth of of uh, material. Well, John, it's been great having you aboard, man. Thank you for this having is, me. Uh, it's been Quite fun. A treat for me, man. Me too. <clears throat> to have uh, your perspective, your voice, and thoughts on these things, and let me know, enlighten me, and continue to inspire me. So, much luck with you as you continue on with your creative stuff. Thanks so much, Mike, yeah. and thank you, Matt. Uh, welcome. Yeah, nice to have you. And uh, there goes the motorcycles. Pedro on the weekend. <laughs> Next time uh, I do the show, next week, I'll be 48. So this is my last radio show as a 47-year-old. Uh, John, you're 50 soon, January. Next month. Yes, sir. Arr. Can't wait. Time <laughs> is a locomotive. But it's all right. Yeah. As long as you enjoy it. Yep. Time flies right. like an arrow. Fruit flies like bananas. <laughs> Right, brother man. <laughs> so uh, we'll have you on again, though. Thank you. Get some new stuff, and we'll play, and we'll play the old stuff too. Fantastic. Uh, much respect again. So this is a December eighteenth, two thousand five edition of the Watt for Pedro show. Keep your powder dry. <laughs> <laughs>